I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I got to have Fred Willard play my dad, you know, and he actually looks like my dad in real life. So it's, <laughs> it's just sort of like... Who looks like Ron I, Burgundy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks like Ron Burgundy and Fred Willard. Yeah, you're like, Kyle, you, your dad looks like too many people. Um, <laughs> he also weirdly, and he was talking about Steve, he kind of looks like Steve Martin too. Hi, I'm Kyle Bornheimer, and when I was five years old, I made people call me Steve Martin for an entire year. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of Off the Beat. As always, I'm your host. Brian Baumgartner, and that was Kyle Bornheimer you just heard from. Today, we're going back to our roots a little bit. Those of you who have listened to this podcast for a while know that before we branched off into Off the Beat, we were telling the story of a little show called The Office. And I actually met Kyle while filming The Office. He was on season four, episode nine, local ad as ad man but before he was our ad man he was an ad man yes there was a time in his life when he was the funny commercial guy but now you probably know him from playing doug on avenue five being teddy wells in brooklyn 99 or as sam briggs in worst week beyond that kyle has guest starred in just about every great show from the last few decades, so much so that he seems to be a part of some writer's room jokes. But look, we're going to get into that. In fact, let's let's get into it right now. Let's bring him on to tell us all about it. Kyle Bornheimer, everyone. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before What's up, Kyle? Hey! How are you? I am very, very good. Even better now that 
I'm seeing you there. Happy New Year. Happy I don't New know. Year. When do you stop saying Happy New Year? Uh, I, maybe today. What's today? Is today the 31st? Oh, that's right. I would say today. I, I don't mind a late January uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah. Especially if you haven't seen it. You know, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you have all the whole month to, to launch into your new year. After January 31st, though, then I think yeah. it's an awful Awful. It's on the Groundhog's Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Happy Groundhog Day. (laughs) It's very good to see you. I have so many things that, one, I have learned about you and rediscovered (laughs) about you, uh, including our brief time together on The Office, actually. But I want to start back. Your story seems fascinating to me you well first off you grew up in indiana yeah that in and of itself is not fascinating no but. no it's the opposite indiana literally means not fascinating yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the definition of indiana no yeah. that's not true <laughs> well it's funny because i understand indiana is not kansas but there was a uh, there was a period of time here that i felt like everyone i talked to was like yeah i'm from kansas and people think oh you've got to be from new york or la or a coast or something and it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in Kansas, and I wanted to, to get into comedy. It's like, oh. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, anyone living in, by the way, Indiana, a kid. But first of all, it is very fascinating, hey, looking back on it. And I just took my kids there for the first time. They were legit fascinated by it okay. um, and charmed and love hearing stories, especially them growing up in L.A. and hearing my stories about growing up in the you know 70s and 80s and 90s in Mishawaka, Indiana is incredibly exotic and fascinating to them. By the way, they're probably going to think LA is boring and can't wait to get out of LA or something. <laughs> right. you know, I think wherever you grow up, you sometimes will tend to think less of it for a while, but then you get older and you look back and I, you know, I really obviously cherish my upbringing there and it was really neat to see it through their eyes uh, this past fall. We went. So it sounds to me you grew up in Indiana as a as an old soul. I'm told that you were a really big singing in the rain fan oh my gosh this that's my favorite movie this is uh that is a french poster for singing in the rain right there a french poster yeah. for singing in the my, rain my friend got that for me actually because i probably because i non-stop talk about that movie yeah it, for, yeah and that's kind of beautiful yeah it literally since when you can carry forward i mean do you have anything like that either people you were fans of or movies or music that when you were five it's the same as when you're 45 I mean, I think for me, it was the Wizard of Oz, Yeah, <laughs> but that feels like a cliche. I no. don't, I don't remember. That's up there for me too. Yeah. I, but I don't remember thinking uh, or knowing anyone as a kid who was a fan of singing in the rain. What was it about that? Was it the, the singing, the dancing? The singing the, and the rain. Uh, and the yeah, rain. <laughs> it, it was both the singing and the rain. You know, it, it's funny you say that not knowing any kids, I there, there's a family lore <laughs> that I made all my six-year-old friends at my birthday party watch Singing in the Rain. Like we were outside doing a bunch of fun stuff. And then I was like, okay, now it's time to go in and watch this 30-year-old movie. I mean, they were singing and dancing. And I can tell you all about what I know about Gene Kelly. So I, yeah, I definitely, you know, my family, it was on all the time. I had pretty good movie Buffy. That might, actually, my Grandparents and parents weren't necessarily movie busts, but they had very good taste and they had a had robust movie collections all the time. Both okay. my mom on my, my mom's side, her dad, and then my dad 
like loved movies. And and like I said, he wasn't like a, a movie buffy thing where he didn't he couldn't like pull out any trivia. He wasn't he just loved movies and they happened to have like some pretty good taste in terms of that mainstream. And that one was just one that very early on spoke to me. I remember my brother's was Some Like It Hot. That was the one that he okay. glommed on to as a kid. Wizard of Oz obviously was omnipresent in our in our whole household. So we watched that. That's remained uh, pretty amazing. But yeah, you know, I think and then whatever, it just sort of became a a staple in our house and I really and continued loving and and whenever I revisit it it is legitimately still an amazingly made movie like it is for some reason of those that era of musicals um when they were done you know all the time it does stand out as a really it's an amazing satire on Hollywood it's just a very tight script it's a the, the musical numbers are beautiful they're very athletic dance numbers that Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly do. I just showed my kids. I mean, they've seen it before, but we just rewatched like the Donald O'Connor make them laugh sequence. And just, they, they were, they were talking about, Oh my God, it's like Jim Carrey. It's like, you know, it really is that physical comedy that probably I also like the, uh, the athleticism and the sort of dynamicism of it as well. Did you now, did you sing and dance and act it out or was this just, Oh, I probably did. You know, it's really funny when I moved to LA without any, First of all, not to be an actor at all. Right. I, I moved out to want to be yes, a writer. Yes, I hear. But on my to-do list, for whatever reason, was take tap dancing lessons. This was, okay. because, <laughs> this was because of my love of Gene Kelly. Now, I had not had any drama, musical, any really any arts education at all at this time in my life. But for whatever reason, that was my list. And I did so. And I bought tap shoes. I took you know a week's worth of lessons. I fell off of my routine in my in my in my practice, and it just sort of fell. And I had no money to be taking tap tap dancing <laughs> lessons, the most impractical thing I could be doing at the time. So, but I kept the tap shoes. And I remember when I first when I was first dating my now wife in my tiny little apartment uh, on Doheny, she came over, and I was like getting ready before we were going out, and she's like, "What's um, <laughs> what's this?" <laughs> and she had found ta- my tap dancing shoes. In, in my closet and uh yeah i had to explain to her well you just started dating a man that uh <laughs> wanted to be a tap dancer at one point and i really wish i would have to this day i still think well you know now I'm heading into a, a, the next phase of my life and maybe i can get that tap dancing thing going again yeah okay well we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about your move to la but i i also was told this that there was a time in your life now i don't know exactly when this was that you where you made people call you Steve Martin. Well, yeah, he would be the other thing. You know, I said singing in the rain. Okay. That since I was five, I've been a fan of, and it's never wavered. And and that fandom has been validated by the fact that he is a, indeed a genius. You know. Um, yeah. So I I did, and that came directly from I loved the King Tut okay. uh, bit. So that was probably mostly when I was little from his uh, certain live appearances, and probably stand up. And then this was the day, this was the era. And I, I, I don't know, did your family do this? This was comedy albums where your parents would buy a comedy album and play it in the living room after dinner, and it was Steve Martin and and Richard. We, we probably didn't do Richard Pryor till we were older, but it was that age. So I, I'm sure we had an album. But I think it was mainly from Sarah Live um, skits, which, by the way, we're not on like YouTube the next day. So I must have been up. You know, my parents must have been letting me stay up. Or right. maybe there's like a news feature on it or something. And I saw it and I, I fell in love with him. And then once I was a little older and watching all his movies, The Jerk and everything just sort of continued that. But I think that was early. I think that was late 70s. I was born in 75. I was probably doing that when I was five years old, like 80. And so 
it must have been from his Saren Live and like maybe maybe a lot of his Johnny Carson appearances too, because that would have been earlier in the day, like ten right. maybe. Yeah. Right, right, right. So you you go to Purdue, and <laughs> at this at this point, you think you're going to do what with your life? Well, it's journalism. Maybe I was okay. Big, I, I I was already falling in love with movies and had was already. This was the '90s. The important part of this is this was the rise of of Tarantino and Jane Camping and 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 Rodriguez and all the film and Kevin Smith and all the indie film indie filmmakers. So my sort of love of classic movies. Um, and then friends introduced me to like the seventies movies and all that kind of cool Godfather and all that stuff. Chinatown. Yeah. yeah, Chinatown and Tax Drive. Yeah, all that stuff. So I was sort of, my love of movies was continuing. And then the 90s hit, and then that was our era of the, all those young, great independent filmmakers. So I was already starting to really fall in love with all that and reading, you know, Filmmaker Magazine and, and finding out what was playing at Sundance and all that shit. So when I went to Purdue, I was I was kind of just doing what you do after college, where you, you go to a, you, you know, you go to college. And uh, journalism was on my mind. I, my dad was, uh, for the first five years, and of his career was a broadcast was a was an anchorman actually he actually okay. looked exactly like ron burgundy he was a very much a 70s anchorman it was hilarious <laughs> um and then my uncle was a journalist i had journalism in me and which i loved and still love journalism so i was thinking of doing that and but i i was really a chance Vis- i visited my sister in la fell in love with it and very shortly after you know getting into purdue i knew i wanted to move out to la so i moved out to la i went to indiana university just for a few months the fe- the following year, but I lived with friends and didn't go to any class except maybe my film classes. And right. uh, then moved out to LA in 96. Yeah. Wow. Wait, so now I got to ask you this, because I, I, I think that we're unique. I had a, the same experience, which was, you know, I had been living a bunch of places and not really spending any time in LA. And I came out to LA for a visit and fell in love with it. What What was it for you about, about LA, about Southern California or whatever that, that, that attracted you so much. Do you remember? I, I, I fell in love with as well immediately. I think it was the big city. I think I was hankering for a big city that it was the film and television capital. I, I, I definitely probably to a fault romanticized the, the okay. industry, which is really fascinating. What we've kind of learned the last five years on how flawed and how, especially during that time it was an incredibly flawed way. We were doing a lot of things with, with this sort of tyrannical swimming with sharks kind of producer mentality that was going on and all that stuff. But that said, there's a lot of beautiful things and wonderful things about this uh, industry. And I think we're probably in the best place it's ever been in terms of, uh, you know, the good people, <laughs> you know, um, um, working with each other. So, but I definitely romanticized the industry. Uh, I loved the big city. It was very affordable. As as mm. big cities go compared to New York and San Francisco right. and even Chicago, LA was the affordable place. Now this sadly, very sadly changed in 2008 or so with the housing crisis and now we're in a real housing crisis here in a rental crisis now but at the time it was affordable so it was very doable i was i was half full of ambition and and little small town guy in a big city and also really scared that i couldn't do it and so la was a good thing because a that where i wanted to be what i wanted to do was here but also it felt more affordable and like a big suburb rather than a than a big city at first to me so um yeah what did you fall in love with what what was what yeah you were from the I south was from georgia or Alabama? Yeah, i was from georgia i mean i had traveled around i you know i had spent some time in the midwest and the northeast and 
I mean, I had a friend who was living in the Westwood adjacent area and there was just, I don't know. There was something wholly unique to me about, I remember, I remember, <laughs> I remember, I remember a coffee bean. I was like, Oh yeah. Coffee bean this? was huge in the nineties. Yeah. What is this magical place? <laughs> <laughs> where you can get freezy coffee drinks all day long and sit outside in this gorgeous weather with the students walking around yeah. and all these beautiful people. I don't know. I It was fully romanticized to me, but I remember just being like, oh yeah, this, I could, I could do this. And it's, it's true what you say, actually, like, I don't know that it was cheap, but you could get so much more for the money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, in New York, you would be in a tiny, tiny studio apartment in a seventh floor walk up and yeah. you might spend the same amount of money, but you would have, you know, a full bedroom and a, a balcony. <laughs> you could be outside or a little yard even and yeah, have yeah. sort of room. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you moved now, you know, you, you say you romanticize the industry. Were you thinking you were going to get into film and television at this at this point? That or were was you just plan. more moving? That was the plan. Okay. Well, movies as no, a writer yeah. director. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the plan, the very unformed, very green plan, and the and the plan that ultimately and unsurprisingly did not work <laughs> was that I was simply going to work in a video store, write a script, and get discovered. I mean, that would that I don't know why that didn't just work out. That that seemed to be what everyone was doing at the time, and I I guess I just missed that boat. Um, now I was you know committed to working hard and, and learning and, and i made a short film i remember with on film not on digital this is before right as digital oh, was coming wow. out so i like spent money on like at 16 millimeter i guess short ends which is like where you would buy like what people didn't use on their movie their short right. ends of their film and i made like a nice little movie and spent everything i had and went broke doing it like a short film did all the things that I thought I should be doing. But I was just too young and too undeveloped to really navigate that world with any real um, expertise. You know, I just wasn't really ready. I'd come out sort of too soon, probably, and a little bit unpolished. So the, the plan was very much to, to get into writing and, and directing. And, and so, yeah, I kind of pivoted to acting four or five years in when I was like at an acting class that I had kind of taken as a quote unquote, as a director, I think I was like, well, now I should uh, learn how actors work since I'll be working with them so much, you know? <laughs> now, and this is Ivana Chubbuck. Is yeah. that right? You are very good, Ryan. Yes. I, I mean, look, I, I try as You're best I can. Succeeding. <laughs> yes. And she is a very big, uh, uh acting director yeah, at the yeah. time. It felt like everybody was taking classes from yeah, her. Yeah, she was. Yeah. And I, I'd gone through all the levels kind of that she had a couple, uh, lower levels that you, you take first. Then I kind of graduated under hers Okay, and, um, loved it. And yeah, saw kind of a path. I, it was, I really needed to be sort of jostled out of my poor plan <laughs> and acting gave me like a, a vision like a road in front of me that i saw which was very simple i mean the one thing i had going for me was i was very patient like you probably know as, as friends sort of start to be like oh maybe this isn't for me or the industry starts to you know take its toll on you uh, early yes. on for whatever reason i was like pretty much in it for the long haul a i had no other i had no plan b <laughs> but i i was also like comfortable like taking my time with it, like being a starving artist for a certain degree in my twenties and, and wanting to actually get good at it. And I'll, and like, okay, I just need a commercial agent. I remember just being like, 
All I need is a commercial agent. I didn't want to get a commercial yet. I was like, have an agent. And then after that, that agent will maybe hopefully get me an audition. And I, I just remember being, being very clear. Like I was, I think now looking back, I was very relieved that I finally had like a plan that I could at least succeed or fail at. Whereas before that I was kind of flailing. And so I was like, okay, well, this is a plan. It's really, I've seen other people do this plan and we'll see if I can navigate this uh, road. And if I don't, then I'll, I'll have a little better sense that I've tried and, and not been able to. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about that. Cause I don't think I've talked to anybody about that. I want your opinion. What do you think it is that, that made you stick with it when so many don't, right? I mean, because that is a, there, there is a, a huge group of people who come out to do exactly the same thing you did, or let's just say they think that they're going to be actors and then it just doesn't happen. Do you feel like it's worth it? work ethic or stick to itness. I mean, I know I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular, a friend that I came up with and was very good and worked just as hard as anyone and uh, had, a ta- had the talent to at the very least have a solid career, but also had like a really good plan B if he didn't, it didn't work <laughs> okay. out or just had a skill set. I shouldn't say that. Yeah. I don't think he was relying on his plan B, frankly, because he had to kind of go back and really like go to school and kind of actually make a hard choice to sort of pivot. Um, but he had a skill set. And I think in that instance, I think he just was looking at the rest of his 20s and looking at his life getting started the way he wanted and knew like, okay, yeah, there's a chance this could happen. You're also looking at a road ahead of you and you're seeing a lot of different examples. You're seeing people that have like maybe held on too long. You're seeing people that like hit right away and you're kind of suspicious of that. You're like, well, I don't want to I don't want to think that that's going to happen to me. So somewhere, maybe I'm in the middle. Maybe I'll I'll start having a career. And it becomes very practical, right? And you know, I'm sure you know this. The dream aspect of it goes away. And the idea that you just want a sustainable career is really what 95, 97% of us are. I mean, the, the, the wonderful stars out there who are able to pick their own projects and kind of design their own careers and make a, a, an amazing living at it, or who are really comfortable being bohemian, like, I don't know, I'll work when, you know, whenever I want to, and I'll, I don't need to make any money at it, and I'll live on a, tr- you know, what, that, there's like that. The rest of us are like, well, at some point, yeah, I came out here with all this passion and dream of what I want, but I'm good at this, but now I need to like build a career. And if I have a family, I need to be able to, you know, so I think you start to put that together. And and when you are doing that in your mid to late twenties, you start to make decisions for yourself. And it's literally different for everybody. And it's, you know, Jack Lemon used to say this, and I'm sure you and I are probably perfect examples to say the same thing. Plenty of people I came up with that were better than me, that were, that are continue to be better than me, that worked harder, that came from a better theatrical background um, and other people that worked that that's that thank God they figured out a way to get out because they were never going to, they, they did, they either didn't have the talent to work ethic or they had stars in their eyes in the wrong way. So it, it kind of is all types. And I think I, for whatever reason, me, I do think of some of it was a desperation. I had really no backup, but I was feeling confident enough. I think at the earliest part of my career, I was feeling confident enough. I was getting and really is because I was getting a lot of commercial work. And once that I started to see that people were responding to what I was doing in that format, I was like, okay, I just knew, okay, step by step. Now let me see if I can get some TV work and stuff and small TV work and each thing. But I plenty of crises, plenty of personal crises in my late thirties and uh, late twenties and early thirties before I was able to have a sustained career of like, if I hold on too long and, and I don't get something that 
sort of gets me to the next level, this is going to get scary for me. This is psychologically and, and financially in every way else. You know? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen Nicotine Pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen Nicotine Pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Well, Kyle is being modest. There was a period of time that Kyle was on television more than Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, commercials galore. Geico, Staples, Coors Light, T-Mobile, Stanley. Uh, he played a mission control in a man's bowels yep, where for i improvised em- the line uh code brown yeah oh you did <laughs> very basic but very i committed to it yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> now were you at this time w- would you get recognized on the street for your commercials you must have i think so i think there was a couple that you know would play very nationally the T-Mobile one was the was the one that actually that other people saw and got me a, a big TV thing at right after that. But okay, yeah, I, I think there was a, an article done a very very randomly. And Entertainment Weekly did an article called <laughs> called the Thirty Second Man about this very thing. Like like okay. that guy, yeah, that was really. I just actually I was going through a bunch of mementos the other day and, and saw the article, which was really fun to see. But yeah, no, very fortunate and very um, to the point of like. I had seen a plan for myself 
one thing I did during that time is I worked at a, at a commercial casting studio. So I don't know if you okay. remember 200 South La Brea. Of course. <laughs> it was the hub, uh, in re- literally central this, in the city. And you had eight or nine casting directors working at this place. You would see everyone in town there every day. You and I probably saw each other before we knew each other. And yes. I worked there. So when you would sort of work for the cast directors and there was a there was a job that you were right for they say oh kyle come in on this pepsi thing or whatever so you just were around it all day and exposed so i remember that that was a big key to me sort of like staying in the game you know in a really smart way like just to sort of be around it all the time does 200 south of brea still exist i don't well i think it does actually and whether they may have moved uh, there's a great cast director that cast me in so many of those named Ross Lacey. And I think he, uh, I remember Ross that. Lacey. Yeah, yeah. And it, he might've moved it or, or sold it or, um, but he was excellent and, and really instrumental. If you're listening, Ross, uh, thank you for my career. But yeah, 200, 200 South La Brea. For those of you listening, you have, you have to understand this. It's the craziest thing. And this is like, there's no parking, very little no. parking, impossible to park. And you would enter the building up a tiny stairwell. I can remember it like it was yesterday. (laughs) And you would go up this tiny stairwell. And as you're going up this, like two flights of stairs, you would pass 17 actors that you knew kind of, and then you would get to the top and there were, yeah, well, you probably know better than me, but like, yeah, eight or nine rooms off of a giant bullpen. Yeah. The huge bullpen area. Yeah. Huge area, like almost warehousian. 80 actors, either, either 80 to 100 actors or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. It was like All either right. like you and two other people because the end of the day, or there were 80 just aspiring everythings. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And waiting to go into one room and like, yes. So Imodium was one room. Pepsi was another room. (laughs) T-Mobile was another. And you, and they would be inside. And the thing, this is, oh God, the thing that that you, there were no chairs. What there were was, (laughs) there were carpeted blocks, Blocks. right? Yeah. Like huge, like uh, 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 huge areas that were carpeted that you would just sort of like kind of sit on i guess yeah and very uncomfortably yeah elbow to elbow with everybody else everybody running their little lines they would you would you would you know it's that surreal thing where it's like you were a type and so you would go and you would see a bunch of views there you would just see i would see a bunch of kyles there you know either new kyles i'd never seen or other kyles that like hey what's up brad like we always see each other at these i mean (laughs) and you have your this is the headshot days i'm like you you would have your headshot Probably That's when right. I started, black and white headshots. I remember the big, the big switch to color. So, and then when you that little hallway, yeah, you would see an actor in a hurry, or an actor that just was pissed off about their audition, or an actor who felt good, or with a, an actor who had the greatest attitude always. Like, like he's always in a good mood. You know, he'll be fine. You know, like yeah. uh, you would see every type of actor coming down that those stairs. <laughs> yes, that, no, it's totally true. Or for me, I think always like parking semi-legally yeah. and it was just like i just needed to get back out to my car yeah, really? as quickly as possible <laughs> so just like hi hi how's it going oh you probably or, had a club at the time i remember having the, yeah. the club on the steering wheel which locked the steering wheel did i put the club on as your oh so many and you know lovely people that would work there but also overworked people and so you yeah. know you didn't always get the most polite room uh in commercial you know casting is normally a very 
warm, polite rooms in most in most instances. But mm-hmm. because of the speed of it and because you're working with like 800 different clients in those rooms, they could be rough, rough rooms in terms of how you felt as an actor. You could get shuffled yes. in there and kind of feel a little like mistreated. And like, this was part of the thing. It wasn't like a horrible mistreatment, but it was just like if there's one aspect of casting that had that, it was the commercial and even shooting commercials sometimes. Everything else, you're pretty well taken care of, especially with cast. And I always tell actors that who are nervous about auditions, like they want you to do well. They want you to be the answer to their problem. They want you to come in and surprise them or be exactly what they're looking. You know, so they're rooting for you. You, you. Every room you go into is rooting for you. They don't want an awkward experience either. They they want their answers solved. And so, yeah. Yeah. But to your to your point in terms of commercial, I've never really thought about this before, but I think when you're dealing with brands, you're dealing with at times, you, you know, the executives and they're not, they're not artists. So they're not looking to take care of you. And I, 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 f- I remember palpably feeling like you would enter the threshold of the room from this, you know, there's 80 to a hundred people bustling around. Your name would be called, you would walk through the threshold and at times they would look at you and then just immediately look down. Yeah, like yeah. you are clearly not the look that they want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter what you say or do because it's all about this look that they're looking for. And then you have to kind of continue for the next few minutes mm. knowing this is just not happening. Yeah. This is oh, not yeah. happening. And that your car might be getting towed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, early on, you break out of doing commercials you start doing some guest star roles and my research has indicated one of the first scripted shows that you did not the first but one of was a little television show called the office i'd have to look into that and see what was it called again <laughs> the, uh, the office, yeah. The office. <laughs> Talk to me about the audition for that. Had you met Allison Jones before, or was that new? Was this did this had anything to do with the commercial stuff? Because this was a local ad where Michael tries to create a local ad, and and your <laughs> ad man. Um, Let's go to a clip, Johnny. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is a brilliant. And I'm sure your fans, the minute you said the local ad episode, they know exactly what you're talking about because it's hilarious. And that was, that was so fun. And that the show was, that's season three, four, four, yeah. episode nine of season nine four of so. season four. And, um, Jason, who had just directed Jason Reitman, Ju- Jason Reitman, and he had just directed Juno and Juno was not out yet, but it was getting like festival love and stuff. And I remember him like jokingly putting Juno stickers all over the set. Um, cause he was like, yeah, yeah. Um, so Allison Jones is, and you know, this completely responsible for so many people's careers. My, you know, one of the handful of cast directors that are just like my guardian angels in this business and who I constantly, you know, just thanking because she, now it's interesting. Was that the, that, what year is that? 2007, 2000? No, this would have been Oh nine, probably. Okay. Oh eight, Oh nine. It might, she might've just been starting to get me because around that time she cast me in a few things. And then, and then since then, like I said, has been just a, a great booster in my career. So wonderful. So this might've been one of the first things with her. One thing I did around that time is I work, I, I, I did this thing called real pros. Do you remember real pros or any of those casting workshops? I they don't. had a somewhat of a controversial moment because there was considered paying for auditioning. Mm. And so 
but it really it was like a workshop and then they, and once a week or so they bring casting directors in and you could actually audition for them in this workshop in this class i was doing that a lot around that time and i actually got a few little things from that i don't think allison was so i actually don't remember the audition process doubt very highly i was it was like an offer so i must have auditioned for it and remember, you know, I remember the striking thing about that was like, oh, you guys, like most of the cast stays in on all scenes. So like actors always kind of like, oh, I'm not in this scene. Great. I get to go. <laughs> but in the office, they're like, no, you guys need to be in the background. And I, were you, do you remember that scene by any chance or, if, or that episode, if you would have been back in that, cause we, that probably, we might've met that day. You guys were all yes. so friendly. And, I'm, yeah. sh- I'm sure that we did. I do remember I went back and, and looked at, at some of the stuff in preparation for talking to you but uh it was a crazy thing because yeah like you said we were all 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 there almost all the time so unless you know you had some characters who went to a restaurant or yeah. you know did something else we were all sort of sort of there um do you have any memories of of being there or of Steve it was one of those things yeah where you this happens sometimes and and I'm sure in the office you guys had this all the time you kind of get the best seat because there's so much observing in that show so much time where you're just sort of like you're like okay this person gets to do their thing now and I'm literally just reacting and Steve I just remember being in the presence that he we were I was already a fan of his and where I just got to sit across from him. I, I just fed him a couple lines and he got to, you know, he had the scripted version and you know, he did that. And then when once that was gotten, he was like go off on his own. And and the whole bit is that he keeps building this ridiculous commercial idea. So it's really like a comedian's dream, like, all right, give me a couple takes where I just get to build the most <laughs> ridiculous, you know, ambition for this this local commercial. So I just remember being charmed by that. I was very hum, you know, humble and quiet. You know, you're being a guest star or co-star in those things, you really I don't want to step on anyone's toes. So I just, I just sort of was like a fly on the wall, but also like, you're always pinching yourself in this business that you're getting to do it. So it was like, I hope I'm prepared enough to do the, what I got to do and also kind of enjoy it while I'm doing it. This is really exciting. And so I just remember kind of just sort of enjoying getting to watch him work was the, and, and also great professionalism by all of you. And just like camaraderie. I saw, I remember that couple of you guys, and I'm not sure if you were, were, were like, we were playing like fantasy football. I think it was like Dwight and Jim were like, but in real life, they were like in between takes. Yeah. They were, they were like looking at their fantasy scores together. And I just saw like real sweet friendship and friendliness. And it was just neat. Yeah. We just uh, recorded for this, our Super Bowl episode where oh, yeah. we had our, our, uh, a commissioner on and uh, we just finished our 18th year. Oh, of wow. doing the office fantasy oh, football league. So that's so great. Yeah. At those times we might've still been drafting on a yellow legal pad, but uh, maybe yeah, yeah, right? was, I do remember them looking down or maybe he was using a laptop. Yeah. I don't think you're yeah. a phone, smartphone quite yet. <laughs> yeah. No, not quite. <laughs> um, you mentioned before you kind of get a big break here. You get cast as the lead in worst week for CBS and this was because of a commercial you were in? Is this how this started? Yeah, I mean, that was like a big, long process. I auditioned with a bunch of people. And then those, the project was shelved for a year or something. And in the meantime, the great Jay Tarsus, the creator of several shows, I think including the Maritime and More show, was the father of Matt Tarsus, another brilliant mind in this business, who is a show creator and, and TV writer. And Jay told his, his son, hey, have you seen this commercial? This, this is like probably the energy you're looking for for Worst Week. And, and Matt was like, I think I've seen that kid. I think, I think he might've come in last spring. So they brought me in again. And thankfully I did the whole, 
process of coming in a couple of times, then testing in front of the, the CBS executives and um, probably read three or four times to, to get it. Um, but without that phone call and without that commercial, I wouldn't have had that chance, which, which was extraordinary. And CBS wasn't really doing the single camera comedies at the time. So this was their big swing with, with single camera comedies and lovely, amazing experience all around with it. And this really was happy. And Matt Tarsus is amazing. And yeah, it was great. Got to work with Kurtwood Smith, who I'm still friends with now. And, 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 uh, it was, yeah, it was great. It was based on a British show, which this is 2008. The office is taking off. And I wondered, I wondered about that. Like is CBS taking a run at single camera, British yeah. adapted shows. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I think there was a lot of that going on. And, and looking back, you're right. I hadn't really pieced it all together, but there was a, a yeah, there was definitely that. And they weren't really they they had all their multicam stuff working really well for them. So ultimately, we got to shoot I think 18 episodes, and they aired I think 14 of them or so. Which for me was, I remember a lot of people being, you know feeling really bad for me. Like when we kind of had the feeling that it was going to get canceled. And I was like, when you're coming up in LA, every single small step is like a huge deal that you are proud of yourself for. <laughs> right. You know, like that, you know, I got into audition for a pilot. That's huge. Oh, the pilot is actually good. I got a part in the pilot. That's good. Oh, your pilot didn't go to series. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'll get the next one, you know, but I'm in the game, you know, it's like, so I remember being sad that I wasn't going to get to work with Aaron Hayes and Matt and Kurtwood and Nancy and all, you know, Fred Willard played my dad in that show. I mean, I couldn't, there was That's no awesome. world where there was anything bad about, you know, yeah, it's, it's sad to lose it, but like, I got to have Fred Willard play my dad, you know, and he actually looks like my dad in real life. So it's, <laughs> it's just sort of like. Who looks like Ron I, Burgundy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks like Ron Burgundy and Fred. Yeah, you're like Kyle. You, your dad looks like too many people. Um, <laughs> he also weirdly, and they were talking about Steve, he kind of looks like Steve Martin too. Um, actually, there's a right behind me. It's a picture of my dad from his days back in the uh, in South Bend WSBT News. There you go. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just you know, getting a big show is is life changing. You know. Do you feel like that gave you confidence? Moving forward, I mean, having that experience of doing that, that same role every day, 16, 18 weeks or whatever it was. It did. It gave me a couple of different things with that. It taught me both good and bad about my own approach to that stuff. I really wore myself out with it. And I and I had a very specific way that I wanted to like do the physical comedy. And and I, I was it was my first time like being that big on a show or being like the 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 lead of a show. And I think I put a lot of pressure on myself. I had fun. I didn't feel like stressed out or nervous. I, I, I was like, I had fun, but I was like very like, do, you know, did we get that? And should we do another one? I have another, you know, I, I didn't understand TV. I didn't understand that, you know, these directors had a shot list they needed to get through, <laughs> you know, for some, I thought like someone that came from like wanting to be a director, I would be more, much more understanding about that. But I was like, can we do 12 more takes, please? Cause I think I, you know, so I think I was <laughs> very right. much like, and I was like, I didn't get it. I, you know, I slipped, but it looked like I knew I was going to slip. I want to make it more surprising when I slip, whatever. So I was very kind of demanding of myself and then ignorance of the process. So, I, I feel like if I went back in time, I would just be a little more like, oh, everyone has a job to do here and I need to make sure that I'm not like stepping on toes. So I think I just learned how to be a little bit of a better professional. And that came also from working with people 
and watching them. Kurtwood Smith was was excellent at just sort of being a great model for how to con- conduct yourself. And it probably took me a few years to learn how to like get what I wanted to get across in the in earlier takes, <laughs> you know, quicker, especially for television, so that I didn't feel like I left anything out there and I didn't feel like I was slowing anything down because you never want to be the person that's slowing anything down. I always like tell people like kind of learn early on what everyone has to do on set and stuff so that you kind of understand how the whole production works as a whole. So I think just that learning experience was key. Um, and then knowing that, yeah, just taught you like what you need to get ready. Like, oh, if I'm going to do this kind of joke, this is the kind of preparation I need for it. So yeah, such a learning experience. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen Nicotine Pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen Nicotine Pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at zen.com. That's zyn.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. guest starred on an incredible number of what I'm just going to call today to make it simple hall of fame shows. So we're going to play a new game games with Kyle. This is going to be first thing that comes to mind when you think of your time working on the following shows. Are you ready? Yeah. This is called First thing that comes to mind slash Hall of Fame with Kyle. Here we go. Great. How I Met Your Mother. Hybrid, no live audience. So they they that was the big thing with that. Um, is most sitcoms always had live audience, and they invented this this. They didn't invent it, but they really did. Where you didn't always have a live audience, 
And I remember loving that because I get very nervous with live audiences. And I still, it's funny, I don't remember the lines right now, but it was something about pregnancy. And I just remember, I remember sitting there on that couch doing that bit. Um, Also, same, same thing, very proud and excited I had a job and like not wanting to screw it up. Breaking Bad. Oh, the greatest thing in the world. He is amazing. So when you talk about like a model for professionalism, he is the exact model. He got, this is their first season. It wasn't big. No one knew that this was going to be the iconic show it was. But he got a gift for me. Like the minute I walked in my trailer, he was just so accommodating to everyone. He was just so lovely with everyone. The whole set was doing like something, I think, because it was- We're 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 talking about Brian Cranston, right? Brian Cranston, sorry. He bought you a gift? Yeah, he gets everybody that comes on that set a gift, like a really nice welcome gift and maybe even a goodbye gift. And I don't think I was there for more than two days. And so he just very, I know now you feel bad, don't you? Like now I'm like, shit, I, I don't know if I've gotten enough gifts for people. I don't know. And, and even family members, I don't know if I've gotten enough gifts for. And this guy's getting, no, he's like, and he's just so present to everybody while doing these amazing, like, okay, action. And then he has to do this guttural, deep, emotional performance and it's not like he like snaps out of it right away he just he knows how to like he's just kind and wonderful professor he's one of my best models i ever saw for like how to conduct yourself so that's what i remember and then just also it was the writer's strike so i think they were finishing production like the day i was leaving because they had the writer's strike so i think that first season had less episodes than the other ones and i just remember looking back being like oh no one knew at this time everyone had confidence in the show and it looked great it was really fun and everyone i kind of knew it was good material no one knew it was going to become you know the one of the greatest shows of all time that is insane Mm -hmm. that is insane i'm going to share with you a story i don't know that i've shared this story if i have listeners then go back i don't think i have (laughs) i was invited to join the television academy and i was like well i'm I'm in the Academy now and I need to do my part. And I remember that year for the Emmys, I signed up to be a special judge on basically everything that I could. (laughs) So like, I think I wasn't allowed to do anything for comedy. That was it. So it was like best actor in a drama, best supporting actor in a drama, best guest star in a drama. By the way, what this means is you have to watch a tremendous number of hours yeah. of television. And then you guys are then put the pool together that then has made it into nomination. No. So what? I think what it is, is we were given 10. So okay. the, the member, the membership at whole had sort of gone down to 10. Okay. And what I knew was this, what I knew was I had never heard of breaking bad and I knew that there was a huge percentage of the membership that had never heard of breaking bad so to get down to that 10 i wasn't sure how brian cranston at that moment had gotten to be one of those 10 just because right. when, when you're in the academy and you vote you just vote for what you know i had not heard of this show and i was a studied television so i got the 10 tapes and i mean tremendous performances from those days all of them and then you had to rank them one through ten and they used that in combination with the, the larger academy to decide who who wins the Emmy. And I watched those 10 tapes. And for those of you listening right now, we're not talking to Brian, but that performance in the pilot, it was the pilot, was so <laughs> unbelievably amazing. I mean, yeah. I was blown away. 
I hadn't heard of the show. I hadn't seen the show. I went immediately and found all of the episodes to watch at that moment. And he won the Emmy that year wow. because For not just one, did I put yeah. him one, everybody who was in that pool had to have put him one because yeah. there just wasn't, there could not have been enough people like, in other words, as a member, I hadn't voted for him because I hadn't right, seen right. the show. I didn't I didn't know. Anyway, I will never forget watching that performance for the first time and and seeing that. And the fact that he was so kind and nice. He directed on The Office as well. I got to know oh, him oh, a cool. little bit. Um, but that's amazing. Uh, this is not this is not turned into the rapid fire game that I intended. But anyway, that was well, that was my fault. I tend to give very long winded <laughs> and on just no impact answers. Give me one more. I'm gonna try to give a one. I'm gonna try to give a quick answer. Well, no, don't do that because then. Oh, do, the, were you gonna do Will and Grace? I Will and Grace. Will and Grace. Uh, I, I I ended up in Eric's uh, lighting three takes in a row, and he was very polite and and just sort of politely asking me to get out of his life. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love that. All right. A couple more Westworld, uh, Western. Uh, if you ever get a chance to do a Western, do it. It's the greatest thing in the world. You get to clunk around in boots and the dust kicks up in your face and you feel like you're literally back in time. I loved it. Also season one, which we had no idea what we were doing. Right. Like, that it was going to be amazing. I, yeah. I, I liked that show season one a lot. Yeah. Modern family. Oh well, yeah. Giggling all the time. Cause it's just there. Everyone in it is so funny. And the concept was funny, which is that Jesse thinks I, he, he was like, he flirted with me when we were teenagers and he thought that I was straight and he thought he was being too like forward with me and he wanted to apologize. And I'm like, Oh no, I was gay. Like I just wasn't into you. <laughs> and I, every time that, that part would, it was just a great concept. Um, and also I just remember that they, and you guys probably got in this late in the office, they shot like eight, nine hour days, which is if there anyone out there like that is, unheard of in this business but which should be more normal at least a you know nine ten hour day rather right. than 12 13 hour um okay last one better call saul revisiting eight years by my yeah. math after breaking bad yeah better call saul that was another great one where i got a lot of a great um a view for the, the second time i did better call saul or was it the first time i forget um i'm at a bar and i just get to watch Odenkirk do his thing he had like a big monologue i think and it's just another thing where i like and then i have to come in and say like two lines before this first scene i just remember being like man better call saul had already been kind of a legendary show Greg Bennett had already been a legendary show so now i'm just on this like legendary set i think they had won the emmy the year before okay. and he gave like a speech to the crew like really nice speech to the crew and i just remember pinching myself and feeling fortunate to to be back on that and then in the adr session where they they needed it like the the after the I'll have you explain ADR. Um, they, I remember them. They were like, you "Just be an asshole." Like off camera, I want him to like be reacting to you being an asshole. And and I just remember, like they said, they said, "Say the worst and most awful things you can say." And so I just remember doing that, sitting in a in a sound booth in, in North Hollywood, just coming up with the um, Vince had written a few awful things for me to say, and just like I, I don't know if I hope or don't hope that that somewhere is still out there. <laughs> <laughs> um. I guess a couple more, but I, these are more discussions. Arrested Development, you played the character Shannon Ryan. That's your wife's name. That's my wife's Did name. Did you just choose it? No. Uh, what's his name? The, the creator of the show. Oh, my names are escaping me today. Um, when, you, when you edit this, go, when you go back, just put okay. his name in my, boy, my face right away. It's funny because my boys have been watching Arrested Development lately. So they were friends. So my wife, uh, worked. they worked together. She's an executive now at Disney. At the time when they were doing wrestling, she was an executive on that show. And she was friends with uh, with him. And he thought it would be funny to call me Shannon Ryan. 
<laughs> they call me her name. Um, okay, last one. I This one, we've got to dive into this. I've got to understand BoJack Horseman. Now, you weren't <laughs> in this. <laughs> you, you have not appeared in this to my knowledge, but your name is. I need to understand how this happens. Well... Yeah, you, so, you have it there. Yeah, yeah. This basic, I, I have to say the line to let people know. Yeah. The line is Pickles about dinner tonight. Am I any network with a show starring Kyle Bornheimer? Because I have to cancel. Now, <laughs> what? Do you know these guys? How did this Never. How did this start? And why why are there so many inside jokes about you in in show? What yeah. happened? Is this flattering? I don't understand. It's it is. <laughs> Remember earlier when I said, "Hey, I'm just happy to be here." Um, uh, so yeah, there's how. What's the best way to answer? Listen, that is a great joke. First of all, objectively, that is a killer joke. And yes, there was a time when I would get cast. And, and, and frankly, listen, I work hard. I think I do well what I do. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I've always, I'm definitely, at least for a long time, you know, in the network side of network comedies, but definitely known for, like, my shows would only be on for a year or half a year, sometimes four episodes. <laughs> um <laughs> Again, I do go back to like, I'm just happy to be here. And I you know as long as my career can keep going, you, you know, there's no guarantees you're going to get on some big, long lasting show. And I know that, but that probably sounds like I'm trying to like, you know, not tell people how hurt I am by it. But I don't know. I do. Ha- I feel like I have a pretty Zen perspective on it and I just know how hard it is. Yeah. So I don't know it, but I, it, the main takeaway is that is a very funny and well-crafted joke. And so I'm happy to be a part of it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, look, I, I read, I was like, what in the, what in the hell is this? And then I was not sure that we were going to discuss it today, but after okay. our conversation, <laughs> I felt like, I felt no, like please. it was a conversation we could have. Do you know Arnett or do you know any of those guys? I do. I, one of my early, earliest jobs when they would never remember, but was uh, Blades of Glory when, when I had a, oh, a quick little scene with that. them. Yeah. Yeah. That was my first uh, first movie, I think, ever. Um, I had one line, which is, uh, it's, you're up, or something like that. Um, okay. Our kids actually now go to school together. I don't think I know. There might be one writer on that staff, I think, that or at that time that might have known me. I almost hope it wasn't, though. I hope it was, like, so known that just, like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I just saw a, a trailer for a show with Kyle Bornheimer. Let's, what's the bet that this is going to go six episodes, 20? You know? <laughs> and... Uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, I love most of the shows. I did one show during that period that was, is, uh, I mean, Worst Week had a great, has had a great, like, little cult following afterwards. Yes. But I also did a show, Perfect Couples, which was lovely, and I had a wonderful time, which was a really neat experience. I mean, you know, like, I've never had a bad experience in this. If you're working in this industry, you know, and you have, you know, halfway decent attitude about it, you're usually having a good time, because at the very least, you're working with really either nice, kind people or incredibly talented people, usually both. And you're sometimes legends. You know, I could be on a bad show that I'm suddenly like working with some legend and I'm just thrilled. thrilled, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Teddy Wells, with my old buddy, creator Mike Schur. How did you get involved with that show? Did you know Mike? Uh, Yeah, since. 
I mean, uh, right. we, 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 now we are kind of neighbors and, and our, our, our boys are, are really good friends and we're sort of family friends with Mike and JJ. And, um, at the time, I don't think I, um, we knew each other very well, uh, if at all, because that was probably started in a way. And I can't remember if that was an audition or an offer, mm-hmm. but either way, it was perfect for me. That was right in my wheelhouse of just like a goofy, overly sort of boring dude, <laughs> you know, probably typecast. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, that one was very easy from the perspective of I, I, I kind of knew exactly what I wanted to do with it. It was written in a way that, you know, that show is written so well. Like they, they have the secret sauce in that show. Um, also works very quick. And I remember great group, of people, like you guys, just a great group of people. And, you know, it's Sony Mike and this was in the office and this was in Parks and Rec. And then, and I've heard us talk about it a little bit. They kind of ushered in the, what sometimes it's called like non-conflict comedy, which is like, we grew up in very conflicty comedy. And that seemed to be the rule. Like you had to have two opposite roommates that were always arguing, or you had to have like the asshole at the office that was like uh, saying sexist shit to the secretary. You know, there was always like, and I think we just, with the onset of like the late 90s, early 2000 comedies, there was like a different way into comedy. And I think that's what, like this community of funny people where funny things happen. It's not like because, that sort of conflict comedy doesn't work, but it just like a new style. I think he ushered that in. And, and I think it also just created, I think this amazing camaraderie of, with those big casts of eight, nine, 12 people that those shows had. Wow. That is such an interesting point that I have not thought about that before. Yeah, but you're like observational right. or whatever, what you would call yeah, it. Yeah. Like, but it's also like more character based, you know, and you may have, idiosyncrasies is a polite way to say it or you know specific character traits that that might be oppositional in a way but like yeah if you think about you know dwight or ron swanson or those characters that yeah it's not it's not like totally oppositional in a way it's much more ensemble specific characters who are interacting together and Quite frankly, most of the time there's a there's a genuine basis of love, yeah, and ensemble togetherness that sort of is behind all of it. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think that quality. Yeah, it's hard to sort of like put my finger on it, but it definitely was a, a, a switch and just a new color to television comedy that was sort of celebrated and fostered in that time. And and I think Mike was instrumental in that, and Greg and and all those guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've been very busy lately. Avenue five, your interstellar comedy, uh, alongside Hugh Lowry mm-hmm. and my old buddy, Zach Woods oh. fun show to be a part of uh, that cr- crazy fun and, and crazy. And, and Zach is, as you know, one of the great comedic minds and just minds in general. I mean, that guy's mind is, he's another one where we yeah. all just sit like, okay, Zach, it's just, you know, it's the cameras on Zach and like, what's he going to do? Um, and yeah, we're in a, um, a spaceship the whole time. It, it, this crazy, humongous spaceship with a working elevator. It, it, like, and you know, Armando Iannucci just sort of composing and conducting this complete chaos with these really subtle sort of social commentary underneath that. All of us about the fourth episode were like, "Oh wait, 
he's talking about Brexit. Like, like, we were all like, oh, this is like just said, this is, you know, we, we didn't even understand like one of the great satirists of our time was like doing a satire again. We're like, oh, this is his like funny, goofy space comedy. He's like, oh, no, he's actually, he's talking about how like the rise of tyranny in, in, uh, in some of the major nations of the world right now. Um, so like we actually had, you know, got to dig, dig deep and, and living in London is, was beautiful and, and, uh, Jessica St. Clair, who's a great friend of mine, play, we play you know, husband and wife for like the 13th time on screen. We just love playing off each other. And um, Hugh Laurie is exactly the the amazing, sophisticated Brit that you think he is and, and drives a motorcycle. And and we're all kind of in awe of him. We all, every single person has a crush on Hugh Laurie. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, incredible. Uh, also, high school, out now, were you a Tegan and Sarah fan? marginally I've, I've since become much more but i i knew like about five of their bigger songs uh walking with a ghost and a couple of their their hits and the, the lego song i knew about and and knew them and always see them like on festival posters when i was i was looking at festivals so but really thrilled to sort of dive deeper into their work which is incredibly rewarding like they they've had I think 10 or 12 albums in the last 20 years and so they have a a library of songs it's really good so that was fun and, and getting to know them and reading that book about them that experience was great Cleta Ball and Laura Cottrell who created the show that's I'm sort of rambling now just because I can't think of any other words besides fantastic and awesome but it's it's uh the 90s it's set in the 90s I love the 90s I kind of considered myself an expert on the 90s and sort of like that indie flavor of the 90s indie movies indie music I was kind of that kid and this sort of mines that world that part of the the 90s but in a in a from a perspective that I was so ignorant of like embarrassingly so two girls you know coming of age and coming out and discovering music for themselves and in a still pretty close-minded 90s even though we kind of considered 90s the, the beginning of sort of modern progressive attitudes about these things it was still pretty closed-minded so sort of seeing that the 90s from that perspective compared to the perspective i had was eye-opening and i'm so glad i got to get that in my life that's awesome kyle thank you so much for coming on sharing your story i'm a big fan of yours i'll watch you do basically anything (laughs) not everything but basically everything and i appreciate you uh coming and uh and taking some time with me today and i found you you have opened my eyes in a new way i'm super super fascinated by this idea i'm going to be thinking about it later today this idea of of the shift in comedy and yeah. and the paradigm that those guys changed that's and uh, you very changed. interesting and you're a delight and and i'm not even going to just say hey anytime please please have me back um all right after i've had a few more canceled shows under my belt and uh <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I will for sure. Thank you, Kyle. (laughs) Of course. This was great. Thank you so much. Kyle, it's so good to see you again. Thank you for stopping by. I cannot wait to check out your new show, High School. And to those of you out there listening, thank you as well. I'm going to see you next week with another guest with Office Roots. Deep, deep Office Roots. Until then, why don't you go out there and for yourselves and for me, just just have a fantastic week. All right? We'll see you soon.
Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Brett. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.